You've probably been wondering what happened yesterday. <laughs> yesterday, in his talk, um, Nathan was um, speaking about this uh, technique that the Buddha offered for working with, um, with dullness and sleepiness, of imagining light coming in with the breath. And that that can really change our experience. Yeah, that imagining the light coming in with the breath, breathing in light, can change the experience, the, the, what seems like a physical kind of given experience, yeah, a fact. I'm tired or I'm not tired. Yeah. And uh, there was already a sense in, in the hall yesterday that that was, that was quite, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> And um, it reminded me also of, of reading um, uh, reading a book by a, a Dharma teacher who's also um, chronically ill and lives with chronic pain. And she describes one of the one of the techniques that's most effective um, for working with with chronic pain is um, also to do with with imagination. So it's imagining um, a happy place. You know, so you have a place where you feel happy, a real place that you feel happy, and you imagine yourself there. And apparently, um, for her and for many others, that, that's the most effective way of working with, with, uh, with a chronic pain. Yeah, so more than painkillers, um, more than many, many other ways of, of doing that. So again, using the imagination to, sh- to change how the pain um, is is experienced, or using the capacities of the mind to change how the pain is experienced, how something is experienced. And it really, you know, both these things kind of touch on on some of what I was touching on two nights ago. You know, that sense of like, what's real, what isn't real. You know, and it's not that the pain isn't real. It's not that the dullness isn't real. Yeah. But it's not real in the way we usually take it to be. Yeah. So what's you know just to kind of again elaborate what how do we usually take things to be take them to be fixed, permanent, solid, constant, and separate? Yeah. Some of the ways that we take things to be. Um, so, you know, this is also how we view ourselves. It's also how we view ourselves. So we view phenomena like that, you know, pain, tiredness, and we view ourselves as that. You know, I am this. You know, I'm this kind of person. Or I am this tiredness. Yeah. I am this pain. And we also view others in that way. You know, you are like that. You know, how many times have we found ourselves in situations like that in relationship? Either actually even saying, that exact, you know, you always do this or you're always like that to someone else. Either saying it in those words or in different words. So that's the, um, the way we habitually view things. 
and ourselves in the world. And what we begin to see when we practice and when we look at these kind of examples, like I've just given, we begin to see that it's not a very accurate way of looking at the world. Yeah. It's useful some of the time in order to function. in the world, but it's not very, very accurate. It's not as real as we take it to be. And again, we have examples of this, um, you know, on a very immediate um, level. And when we practice, we spend time doing what we're doing here, we really see that, you know, the changing energy levels. You know, so there can be changing energy levels through doing something in particular, like breathing in light. Um, and there can just be changing energy levels, just, they just change. You know, I know for myself, um, when I'm on retreat, I usually get tired um, somewhere between 8 and 9.30 in the evening. Yeah? And it really feels like I should go to bed then. You know? I get really sleepy and I'm sitting and I'm nodding off. You know? But if I'm in a situation where I carry on practicing, usually that tiredness will go. Yeah? It's really interesting, you know, it just, it, it shifts. And similarly, you know, we know that with other things, with moods, with mind states. And sometimes we don't need to do anything, but something, you know, everything arises due to conditions, and the conditions change and it passes. Yeah, or different conditions arise, yeah, it passes. So, you know, we know this experience. And I think Nathan was talking about this to someone just before the retreat. I don't remember if it was on the opening day or before that. But remembering this um, quite extreme example of of this to do with with energy levels. Um, A friend of a friend of ours who went trekking in Lapland um, during the time of year when there's, where it's constant light, yeah, it doesn't get dark. And uh, they intentionally didn't take, um, didn't take a watch. So they, had, they didn't know what the time was. Yeah? There's light all the time. And so, you know, walking and then just having to really listen into the body, you know, so like stop to eat when they were hungry and go to sleep when they were tired. <laughs> But having no, not even that sense of time, which feels so real to us, but then put ourselves in that, in those conditions, in that situation, 24 hours of light, no watch, yeah, no way of telling the time, and that also dissolves and dissipates, yeah. You know, no, no idea if he's, you know, if he's going to sleep every, you know three or four hours or <laughs> like just yeah no idea how long how much time has passed until you know finish the track I think the I think the indication was probably the amount of food he had you know he had to, he had to get out at some point because he had no food left and then he could find out you know how long had he been there it's really um it's mind-boggling, you know, it really kind of blows the mind to think, you know, even something is t- like time, which seems so fixed, so solid, is, is really conditioned, yeah? Conditioned, it relies on 
the sun going up and down and us being able to see it, yeah, for us to, to follow a certain pattern. So everything arising due to conditions, passing due to conditions, and these conditions very, very complex. Yeah? It's like a web of conditions that comes together and is constantly flowing and moving. So much more complex than um, our mind can actually grasp. Yeah. It kind of leaves, leaves us kind of like, wow. <laughs> wow. Like, that's, that's kind of what's going on, really. Yeah. Beyond the appearances of, you know, one body sitting here and other body sitting there and dark outside and whatever. These are appearances. But beyond these appearances, there's this web of conditions and causes just flowing. So this is one kind of all of this is one really um, um, kind of really one really amazing um, teaching that comes just from reflecting on on these examples that I started with. You know the 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 um, co-arising of of the mind, the imagination, and experience, and. What flows on from that, which again we've touched on, but I really want to kind of highlight again today, is that suffering, dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of things, it arises when we buy into our um, habitual view of the solidity and permanence of things. Yeah, It arises when we solidify, when we make things permanent and unchanging. I had a funny example of this, um, I think of it for a few weeks before this retreat. Um, I would kind of occasionally find myself, often in the middle of the night, kind of thinking, am I crazy? Why did I arrange a retreat in the Himalayas in December? You know, am I crazy? And it was kind of in my mind, like December plus Himalayans equals cold. Yeah, that was what, what was going on in my mind. And it was like, you know, for sure, December plus Himalayas equals cold. It's an obvious formula. It's absolutely true. And we're all going to be sitting here freezing, you know, really cold. And I kind of begged Mark and Maylin to bring up this heater from their house and beer, <laughs> things like that. And then the reality, yeah, it's very different. So the mind, you know, takes something that seems real and factual, you know, December in the Himalayas is going to be cold. You know, even friends of ours who've been here have said to us, are you crazy? It's going to be cold. You know, so it's, yeah, it's a fact. And the suffering arises around that even weeks before the event. And then the reality is different. The reality is different. So the suffering arises when we believe that solidification of the mind. And the suffering decreases, it goes down, the more uh, we can hold things lightly. Yeah? Our sense of 
who I am, in a sense of who others are, in a sense of what things are. Yeah? The more lightly we can hold that. So we're not saying things aren't real, we're not saying it's all an illusion, but the more lightly we can hold things and our sense of self, the less suffering we have, we experience. Another way of saying it is the more we can rest into that flow, that dynamic flow of causes and conditions, that complexity that I was talking about, the more we can rest into that, the less suffering, the more space. So the more we attend, the more we attend to our experience, to what is arising in our experience with wisdom, yeah, i.e., meaning we bring in ways of looking that support that holding lightly, that support that resting back into the flow and the flux. The more we do that, the less suffering there is in our lives, the less suffering we experience. And again, like everything we're saying, you know, look at this in your own experience. You know, this is, retreat is, is a great opportunity to do that. Explore that in your own experience. So we have a habitual way of looking at things as as solid, including our sense of self. And we see that suffering arises with that. Yeah, with that with that solidifying and rigidifying of things and of ourselves. And so we can say, and again we're going to explore this a lot more over this retreat, but really kind of looking at it already in your experience, we can say that the experience of suffering arises with the experience of self. Experience of suffering arises with the experience of self. There can be no suffering if there isn't someone. (laughs) Yeah? And the experience of self, and it's very, kind of very, usually with the suffering, it's a very contracted, narrow, rigid, fixed sense of self. And this self, this sense of self is a fabrication. It's a construct. It's something that is created. Yeah? Just like everything else. Yeah? It's not, there's no essence to it, but it's part of that dynamic flow of causes and conditions. That sense of self that we have. And this is, you know, I I really, you know, I know on some level this makes sense, but I really also want to acknowledge that on many, many levels this is really counterintuitive. (laughs) Yeah, we really need to acknowledge that to do the work, yeah? Because, you know, if we're honest and we look at our experience, we have lived our whole life with a kind of a, a, a seeming continuous sense of who we are. Yeah? And we have to acknowledge that. We have to take that into account when we start kind of playing with it. Yeah, we start looking at it, inquiring into it, 
Please let me know if you can't hear me. I keep feeling like my voice is dipping. And the more we look into this in our own experience, yeah, the more we play with it in our own experience, um, and we actually see it experientially, understand it experientially, yeah, the building of the sense of self and the relationship between that and unhappiness, yeah, seeing that experientially. The more we see this, the more we understand it, and the more we can then loosen up the process, yeah, the more we can then loosen up the process, because we see more and more clearly, we're more familiar with the process and with the kind of building blocks, which you know, have a lot of commonality between us and then each of us will also have, you know, there'll be our own particular favorites, yeah, within it. So we can loosen up the the process of construction. And I haven't found a better system than um, the Dharma teachings for, for doing this. Uh, there may be, you know, there's lots of systems around. There may be. Um, and, you know, I haven't looked incredibly thoroughly at, at too many. But in my experience, this is, this is really a fantastic, a fantastic system. And the Buddha really, um, is one of his great talents was to offer us um, maps and structures that help us understand. You know, they're not... None of them were absolute truths, and he didn't speak of them as absolute truths. He didn't say, ah, this is the way things are. You know, he said, Look, looking at life in this way, exploring in this way, is useful. Yeah? So he gave a lot of these, and, and I want to look at a few today. The kind of maps or structures. So the first thing I want to look at is... Um, and one way that um, we construct experience, our experience of, of being alive, our experience of the world, um, which, is, which is actually pretty simple. Um, and it's, it's called the six sense spheres. That sounds quite like, woo, six sense spheres. It's actually much simpler than it sounds. <laughs> okay? So in, in, um, in ancient Buddhism, and I think this was common um, to ancient Indian um, kind of wisdom traditions, I'm not sure about that. There are six senses, yeah? the five that we're all familiar with, yeah? seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touch. And the sixth sense is the mind. Yeah? So it's really that, that in itself is really interesting, the mind as a sense. So the six sense spheres are made up, each one is works with one sense, and they're made up of the sense doors, which are for, you know, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth, the body, <laughs> and the mind. They're made of sense contact, yeah, so the sense door and the sense contact, meaning um, contact from something, from a form of some sort, with the sense door. And the third component is the sense consciousness. And consciousness 
um, is the same as what we've been calling knowing or awareness. Yeah, that which recognizes that, that contact. Does that make sense? So, you know, just to, to give a, a really um, simple example, um, the eye is in contact with light, and that is received and known through awareness. Yeah? So that's a sense sphere. Right there, the sense sphere of, of the eye or of the seeing. Yeah. So this is a you know really basic structure, and it's kind of a basic component in how we um, how things are constructed, and it kind of part it's part of a lot of the maps that that are around um, to understand that the construct of, of self and of experience. So today. Um, in the instructions this morning, um, we were exploring Vedana. And uh, hopefully you found it in- interesting. And Vedana is um, part of a really, um, of kind of the most, how do you call it, the ultimate map of the Buddha's teachings, which is dependent origination ultimate map which um, can really kind of take us into the the deepest understandings of, of, of the human experience and I'm just going to go through a, a, a section of, of uh, the what is called the, the chain of dependent origination or the links of dependent origination so it's not the whole thing, it's a part of it So, with the sense spheres as a condition, there is contact. Okay, so just what I was describing now. Yeah, there is the the sense door, say the eye. There is the, the form, the light. And there is the knowing of that. So that, that whole grouping, that sense sphere makes contact. Yeah, contact between the knowing, and the world. With contact as condition, there is Vedana. Yeah? So with that contact, through whatever sense, there will be that categorization of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither one or the other. Yeah? Always. There'll be that categorization with the contact. Whichever contact there is, there'll be that categorization. With Vedana as condition, craving. With craving as condition, clinging. With clinging as condition, becoming. And with becoming as condition, birth. Yeah. So that's the that's a chunk of the of the of the links of the dependent origination. So with the sense spheres as condition, there's contact. With contact, there is Vedana. With Vedana as a condition, craving arises. With craving as a condition, clinging arises. With clinging as a condition, becoming arises. With becoming as a condition, birth arises. Birth happens. And, um, you know, in some some, um, traditions or interpretations this is actually seen as a description of rebirth but um, the Buddha was offering this actually as a, as a description of 
um, really are moment to moment, the moment to moment unfolding of our experience and the, particularly the construction of the sense of self. So the birth here is not um, you know, a birth of a new being into a new body, but it's the birth of identity. Yeah? It's the birth of a sense of self. And with that birth of the sense of self comes change. Yeah? Aging, sickness and death, lamentation. I can't remember the rest of it, but it gets pretty dire. <laughs> But basically, anything that is born, anything that is created, is subject to change. So the the cause of suffering. And this is a, a really, it's a very, very powerful way of looking. We've been using this language of ways of looking. This dependent origination is a really, really powerful way of looking. And we can apply it, you know, in different ways different degrees of complexity. Very powerful way of looking, kind of helps us break down the construction. And I want to give an example. Easier to understand with examples. So this happened to me, um, now you'll know how un... un, um, What's the word? Not advanced, evolved how unevolved I am, if you haven't guessed already. So um, I was on retreat in November, and um, I was doing a lot of, a lot of walking meditation. Um, and it was, it was cold, so it was like a, it was a, a, a whole thing, you know, to go out to do walking meditation. You know, I'd have to put on my million layers and, you know, my hat and gloves, and it was a big, you know, big production. So, you know, one day I, I did the whole production and went outside to my spot where I was doing my walking practice and um, started doing the walking practice. And then I heard this really unpleasant sound. It was a bzzz, but, you know, of a mechanical sound, not a, not a bee. Um, and then I remembered that there'd been a note up on the notice board saying, you know, they were po- apologizing, but they were trimming... Um, trimming the hedge um, in one part of, of Guy House, this meditation center. So they were apologizing that there would be this kind of noise in, in the area where I, um, where I like to do my walking practice. So, you know, there I am doing my walking practice. There are my ears. There's the sound coming to the ears contact, it's being known, the Vedana is unpleasant, yeah, and potential for the whole thing to go, yeah, the whole thing to go, unpleasant, therefore I don't want it, (laughs) yeah, I don't like it, I don't want it, I can't stand it, you know, the escalation, yeah, the craving and the clinging. I can't meditate with this going on. That's the becoming. I cannot meditate with this going on. You know. And then from the becoming, the birth. Yeah, both of the person who cannot meditate, the sense of self, and sometimes an action. You know, I could have gone back in and barged into the manager's 
dining room where yogis are not allowed <laughs> or, you know, written a, a nasty note or whatever. You know, there could have been a lot of stuff going on. And the suffering, you know, the suffering in the moment, yeah, unpleasant sound, all of that is suffering. Can you see that? The whole process, the whole escalation in this case is suffering. And then if the action follows, then that suffering is then not just felt by me, but then that suffering is also passed on to someone else. Yeah? Creates more ripples. So that's the, that's the chain of dependent origination. This didn't actually happen, the, the escalation. Yeah? It didn't really happen. I was doing, at that point, I was doing a practice called staying at contact. Yeah? It was one of the practices I was doing. And um, so as soon as I heard the unpleasant sound, I decided to, to do that practice, staying at contact. What is this practice? Is, and it's very easy to do with sound, is receiving, yeah, receiving the sensory impression, staying at the contact, just receiving that. Yeah, so I was just receiving sound. I was doing my walking practice, receiving sound. Sound of birds, sounds of airplanes, sounds of the wind, Sounds of the hedge being trimmed. <laughs> you know, just receiving sounds, just being a space with just staying in contact. And most of the time, um, you know, and, and not, not needing to kind of name what the sound is, to analyze, just a space that's receiving sound. So most of the time, it doesn't even get to Vedana. Yeah? It doesn't even get to Vedana. And the problematic stops being problematic. Yeah? Problematic stops being problematic. So the chain of dependent origination can stop at the contact, or it can stop at the Vedana in the practice that we are doing today. It doesn't escalate. It doesn't escalate anymore. It kind of um, neutralizes so maybe more accurate to say is that with a staying at contact, there isn't necessarily that there's not a Vedana, but the Vedana is neutralized. Yeah? So it becomes neither pleasant or unpleasant. But with the interest, we keep going. So the really interesting thing in that is that we have this capacity to do this. Yeah? We can stay at contact or we can stay with Vedana and that um, stops or lessens the building up of the self. Yeah? Because the self builds up in relation to something. Yeah? And usually the relation is a friction relationship. Yeah? So it builds up in relation to, to, to something. If I'm relaxed, at ease, receptive, staying at contact, the sense of self doesn't build up. I mean, once in a while they'll be like, hey, I'm doing this great. <laughs> Look at me. You know, I'm staying in contact. You know, that's also a self-sense. <laughs> and once in a while that also will come. But then again, then contact of the mind. Ah, it's a thought. Again, I don't need to believe it. I don't need to follow that trajectory. I can just stay in contact with a, with a mental, with a thought. 
And the, the result, you know, the real indication that there's less building of self is that there's a sense of, of ease and of release and relief. So the experience is actually um, pleasant. Yeah, staying in contact. The experience is actually pleasant. Because there's a sense of relief without all of that activity of the building and all of that narrowing down that comes with that, the building of the self. And, and it's really, um, you know, this staying at contact and the Vedana are very, very similar in, in what they allow, you know, in the stopping of the building of, of this sense of self and the construction, the stopping of the escalation. And they really allow us to rest back um, into life and they can bring a lot of relief. I remember someone um, a couple of years ago coming to me on a retreat and saying, I never realized that something could be unpleasant without causing suffering. You know, he was doing the Vedana practice. It can be unpleasant, but not cause suffering. Yeah, isn't that built up? Right, we'll plod on. So one other really interesting insight that can come up um, when we do these practices, um, and you've probably seen it today with Vedana, and if not, you know, I encourage you to, to look at it a little bit more, is that the type of Vedana, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, is not inherent in the object. Yeah? The object being you know, a sound, a physical sensation, um, whatever it is, the Vedana isn't always the same. Does that make sense to people? So I don't know um, if anyone has had that experience, but sometimes even something like physical pain, when we give, the atten- we give attention, we watch the Vedana, the physical pain, it can actually, with the attention, it can actually change. Yeah? From being unpleasant certainly to being neutral, and sometimes to being pleasant. Yeah? So it can actually change. Even something that seemingly has you know, pain, <laughs> that's clearly unpleasant. But with the attention and the change you know, of the building up around it and the resistance to it, it can change. And, you know, the easiest way of experiencing this is just be, just watch what happens. Look at the Vedana when you chew one mouthful of food. That's the easiest. You have to wait till breakfast to do it. The porridge is particularly good for this. Um, but just watch how the Vedana changes. It might be your favorite thing to eat. I'm not going to say any, I'm not going to give any examples. <laughs> I'm not going to torture you. It might be your favorite things to eat, but just watch one mouthful. If you, if you, Observe what's happening as you chew and how the Vedana changes. And if you keep chewing, it will get unpleasant. Yeah? If you just keep that mouthful in and chew and chew and chew, it will get unpleasant. Even it's the best thing. Yeah? So the Vedana is not inherent in the object. It changes. And I don't really need this example, but I, I want to I wanna give it... Um, so we were visiting a friend 
a couple of months ago who's got um he's got a, a young a young son I can't, I can't remember how old but less than two years old and um very very sweet little boy and he was I think he was kind of um banging an object against something making a really really loud noise with that object and the little boy for him the vedana was clearly pleasant you know he was you know, he had this huge smile on his face he was really loving it <laughs> like look you know i'm banging it and it's making a noise you know he's just really full of joy nathan and me vedana was clearly unpleasant you know it was like really oh this really you know annoying it's really annoying really annoying the parents where, you know, through the love of the child and the, you know, excitement of him learning, you know, whatever it is, they also seem to experience it as pleasant. I didn't ask them. I thought it would be quite rude. But they, they also seem to experience it. So, so the Vedana is not in the object. Yeah. It's very much impacted by the way of looking. Yeah. By the way of looking. Yeah, but what else is going on? Yeah, so not in the object. And it's really helpful to remember that. You know, it can also really take the sting out of a lot of the suffering in our lives if we remember that. Yeah. So it's also conditioned. The Vedana is also conditioned. So we can um, try these practices with the different sense doors. You know, um, the staying at contact, the Vedana, and then the other practices we'll be offering from tomorrow. We can use this kind of the different sense doors to, to try them out. And I'll just say that for most of these, the hearing and the touch uh, work really well. Uh, the thinking in particular can be much more sticky and tricky. <laughs> so we sometimes need to be more, um, more collected before we really kind of try it with the mind. But if you feel interested, try yeah, and see. And sometimes, like I said, we just in the moment we can just see, ah, it's it's a thought. It's just a thought. You know, just like a sight and a sound and a smell. Just a thought. I don't have to, as Nathan was saying, hook onto it. Yeah. Don't need to hook onto it. Don't need to latch onto it. So remembering um, over the next days and as we um, continue you know, to offer more ways of looking that can um, help us unravel the, the process of, of the building up or at least kind of get glimpses into how it unfolds. Um, remembering that this um, change of, chain of dependent origination is also a way of looking and it's really useful for our exploration. Uh, the exploration of what leads to suffering and what leads to release from suffering, freedom from suffering. Sometimes have problems understanding my own notes.
So most of the time, you know, the sense of self, most of the time it goes, um, goes unquestioned with us. You know, we don't really question it. It's just there and we believe it. Yeah, and we take it to be who we are. Whatever is arising as an experience of self in the moment, take it to be who we are. We believe it. And yet, again, you know, in the meditation, we can see that that changes. Yeah, we can see that that changes. And every time we see it, it's a really, really important insight. Yeah, we can take time also to do that in reflection. You know, to say, okay, you know, when I reflect back on the day, what was the sense of self like in the morning? What was it like before lunch? You know, just just dropping in the question and reflecting. What was it like? We can reflect on times in the day when, or over the days, when there was more ease more sense of openness or spaciousness. And just reflect on that and, and kind of remember back, what was the sense of self like then? You know, was it strong or more subtle? Yeah, was it very dense? Or was it more spacious, more open? We can reflect on times when we were caught up in, in strong um, or painful experiences. You know, it could have been physical, mental, emotional. And what was the sense of self like then? And so we can, we can do that. We can reflect in that way. can see now why Nathan um, goes electronic <laughs> because he can edit things and then they all flow whereas my notes are all over the place I'll stop apologizing for that so what is the sense of self like this um, these periods of intensity you know when there's a lot of intensity a lot of intensity arises um, either physically mentally emotionally um, are actually um, also an opportunity to learn. Yeah? So they can feel very, very unpleasant and they can feel very much like a distraction from the meditation practice. But that's not what I'm here to do, to be caught up in this story, to be caught up in this emotion, to be caught up in this um, thought pattern, um, or to be distracted, continuously distracted by this physical discomfort. So it can seem like... Um, you know, they're not what we're here to do. But actually, they can be a real opportunity for learning. A real opportunity for learning. And I'd like to say a little bit more about um, particularly the, the intense thinking, which sometimes comes on its own and often accompanies either physical discomfort or, or emotional intensity. You know, they'll usually be accompanied by this intense patterns of thinking. And both Nathan and I really like talking about this because of the Pali word for it, which is papancha, which is just such a wonderful word. It really has the feeling 
you know, Papancha really has the feeling of the thing, yeah, that intensity of thought that kind of builds up and escalates. Um, it's translated as um, proliferation of thinking, which is, um, yeah, a hard word to get your head around. What was Tunisia's Bhikkhu translation? Do you remember? Huh? Just escalation. Escalation, okay. So escalation, or I, I sometimes think about it as like dramatization, you know, like it, it becomes a drama, you know, things become a drama. Um, and Nathan uses this image sometimes of getting on the Papancha train. So, you know, something happens and we get triggered and we get onto the Papancha train and the meditation ends, the bell rings, or sometimes the day ends, we get to bed or whatever, and we realize we've been on this Papancha train um, for all that time, a lot of that time. It's really intense. It's really, um, really pulls us, sucks us in. And so, you know, just to give an example of this, um, you know, very simple, you know, we might be, um, you know, walking to get a drink or something, um, and a smell comes from the kitchen and it's a pleasant smell yeah so there's the contact yeah with the with a with the smell and the vedana is pleasant it smells good to us and so immediately there's that sense of oh, i like this you know i like this smell um i want it <laughs> you know i want whatever that smell is and then um that gives birth to um, the imagination of what that might be. I really hope it's that sweet they made the other day. You know, that was really good. And I hope they make more of it this time so I can have more. Maybe there'll be enough for for tea as well as for lunch and I can have it again. I wonder why they don't make it every day. You know, it doesn't look like it's that expensive. You know, surely they could afford to give it to us every day. Um, looks really nice. Ah, I really want to get the recipe at the end of the retreat. That would be wonderful. Yeah, maybe I can learn how to cook and I can open a restaurant for Indian sweets back at home. That would be a really fantastic thing. What would be a good location for that? Oh, yeah, that place would be really good. Sounds familiar? Yeah. This is an extreme example. <laughs> well, not extreme, actually, at all. Happens to us all the time. Yeah? And something really trivial. You know, it's just a smell. Just a smell. And what tragedy is going to happen when we come, end up at lunch after all of that and there's not going to be any sweet at all? You know, that's going to just send us off on another papancha train of what happened to the sweet and who ate it. <laughs> so, you know, it can, it can just send us off. And... Um, some, a few really important things about it. You know, so I gave a very kind of generally pretty harmless yeah, example, even though for most of us, if that's going on during the meditation, at some point we'll get annoyed with ourselves, yeah, usually, <laughs> at some point. Important thing is to notice when you get off the train, yeah, even if it's for a moment. You know, when you kind of surface up suddenly and realize, oh, actually, I'm here meditating, practicing. I've just been off in this drama, story, intensity. And now I'm back. Yeah, now I'm here. 
And we take a moment to really relish that. And, and usually the pull will still be there. It'll be a pull. That's also a contact, by the way. Again, contact with a, with a mind sphere. Yeah, it'll be a pull back into the thinking. So noticing that we're off the train and learning to work with that intensity, you know, and, and I gave, a, you know, like I say, a pretty benign example, you know, there can be much more um, painful things that go on or, you know, important things that go on, you know, where kind of memories come up or whatever, you know, there can be a lot of that and a lot of intensity and um, can be really helpful to work with that. I just want to, to read a, a um, before I go into that and how to work with it, just a, a piece from a, from a sutta where this process is described also um, as, as, a, um, as this dependent origination chain. So he's using the example of the eye here. And he's saying, dependent on eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. Yeah. So this is the eye sense sphere. The meeting of the three is contact. So the eye is the sense door, the form, the external form, the light, the eye consciousness, the seeing consciousness. Those three together make contact. With contact as a requisite condition, there is Vedana. What one feels, the Vedana, brings perception, labels in the mind. With perception comes thought. Perceive something, we think about it. What one thinks about, one complicates. I love that. <laughs> we think about something, we tend to complicate it. It doesn't stay simple. And based on what a person complicates... Papancha, the papancha train gets going. Yeah, he's using different language here, but he's talking about papancha. He's using the word papancha. So, based on what a person complicates, papancha gets going. So, it's again, you know, the dependent origination, like the, the chain, has slightly different factors, different places in the suttas. This is a slightly different, but saying the same thing, following the same flow. For me, very beautiful, but it might be an acquired taste, I don't know. So working with intensity, when that papancha intensity is happening, coming back to the body, yeah, always really, really helpful. So the, the thoughts are going, the thoughts are going, we come back to the body. And if we can, we relax the body as much as possible, even if it's just a little bit. So we can relax with the breath, or we can go through the body and relax different areas. Yeah, but we relax the body, and that can just help um, a little bit disengage from that intensity, or, or you know that we're not feeding that intensity of thought anymore. Sorry. Calming the calming with a breath. Yeah, calming the body with a breath really really helps. 
So more emphasis sometimes on the out-breath and the letting go and the relaxation that comes with that. Sometimes um, a little bit what we were playing with yesterday, that stretched awareness. So seeing what happens if the thinking is going on, but if I can open up the awareness around the thinking and I'm creating space, yeah, like feeling the whole body can also really, really help. Remembering that it's not personal. There's the mantra, if we could have it inside our head. It's not personal. Yeah? This is an energy that's flowing through. It's not personal. It's not mine. It's not me. Yeah? It's not personal. And sometimes really help to, to take the fuel out. What would be a kind response? Yeah. What would be a kind response? So sometimes um, underneath that intensity, there's actually an emotional need. Yeah. Underneath the intensity of thought, be an emotional need. What would be a kind response to that? You know, sometimes can even be just physically, you know, kind of holding ourselves. Yeah, in some way, just like, ah, I'm here, you know, and grounding. Sometimes opening the eyes and looking at everyone else in the room, practicing with us, feeling the support from others can help disconnect. Sometimes imagining light coming in, back to the beginning. Yeah, imagining light coming in can help kind of open up the space and illuminate the space. There's less intensity, less darkness. Remembering that like everything else, you know, experience is changeable and the sense of self is is changeable. So there'll be a, a real, with that intensity of thought, the sense of self will be quite tight, usually. And so remembering you, this too is changeable. This too is not fixed. It's not finite. It's not going to stay like this forever. Yeah, it's a passing phenomena. A passing phenomena. You can use um, Vedana, actually, to help stop the escalation. Yeah, what is the Vedana of the experience? Checking in, what is the Vedana of the experience? And can I just stay with that flow of Vedana? It really help to decrease the escalation and the building up. And all of this helps to cult- cultivate a confidence in us. You know, as we do this, as it becomes more and more experiential and experiential understanding, we gain confidence in our own capacity and our ability to meet experience and to relate to it skillfully, to meet it and relate to it skillfully. So Dharma practice is really about looking deeply at things and into things, including ourselves. You know, that's what insight means. That's the practice we're doing looking deeply at and into things, including the sense of self, beyond how they appear to be, so beyond appearances. So papancha 
is also an appearance. It arises due to conditions and it will change. And the way we look at it can support that change to happen. Can support us to see into the emptiness of that too. So remember that confidence. So important. We're building up, cultivating our confidence in our capacity. Our capacity to relate skillfully to our lives. So, the end. Let's have a quiet moment together. So may our practice together nourish our confidence to look at experience and to attend to it skillfully, wisely and compassionately. And may our practice together support freedom from suffering for all beings everywhere, including ourselves. So thank you for your listening. So have a 15 minute break and then come back here for our last meditation and chanting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.